0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA as we dig into the Word of God.
1: If you'll turn, please, to 1 Timothy. And if you'll stand for the reading of God's word, I will begin in verse 12. The subheading here in the ESV is Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Thank you. Verse 12 begins with, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I have received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ." Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Fade, fade each earthly joy.
2: Good morning. morning. I do want to say happy Mother's Day as well to all you mothers. And uh, Jim actually said to be sure to mention that on his behalf as well. So happy Mother's Day from uh, Pastor Jim as well. Before we get into today's study, let's have another word of prayer. Father, we come first and foremost acknowledging you as holy, 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 the righteous God who spoke the worlds into existence and we're but dust, as we just sang, perishing things of clay, born but for one brief day. Lord, we acknowledge that we are depraved, sinful, completely helpless and hopeless, incapable of improving our situation. And so we cast our hope completely and solely on the finished work of Christ Jesus, because he is the only access, the only way that we can stand before a righteous and holy God justified. And so we give thanks that he is the only way. And as we look at this scripture this morning, we pray that you would be glorified by it. Pray that you would give me the words to say, ask that those who are here would be able to receive it and would be edified by your truth. So thank you once again for this opportunity. We pray that you would receive glory and honor for your name's sake this morning. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, but don't turn there. We will get there. Um, we're going to do lay a little background before we get there. I had been called to preach. Jim had asked me to preach uh, next month, the 25th, and so I had been preparing for that, um, and this was the text that I was working on. And so when he called me Friday, I just decided I would try to expedite it and try to get it prepared so that I could give it to you uh, this morning. So I hope um, that it's not too rushed through and that you will be edified by it. Uh, I chose this particular text because as we're Engaging in our study in Galatians, as we just started that series, there is the claim, there is the call by some that what Paul teaches us in his epistles sometimes contradicts or is different than what Jesus teaches in the Gospels, and particularly when it comes to uh, justification, justification by faith. But this passage that you're no doubt familiar with is a short passage, it's a parable that Jesus gives concerning two men that went to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And I think as we study this simple, it's only six verses, it's very clear. There's nothing confusing about it, but it is profound in every sense. And I think when we look into it, we will see that when it comes to justification, Jesus also, along with Paul, stated and made clear that our justification is not of works at all, but through faith. And we're going to see that laid out in this section. As I mentioned, we're going to do a little bit of background here before we jump into the text. As probably the most frequent question from this pulpit, I think one of the top ones is uh, what is the most common sin that's mentioned in the scriptures? You should all be familiar with that question. Jim asks it uh, frequently, and that is... Pride. pride, yes. Pride is the thread that ties self-righteousness to works. And that's where we're going to end today as we get to the last, verse 14. This all ties together to pride. And I wanted to look at a few verses here that can kind of set the stage so we know that there's a reason that no one can glory before a holy God there's a reason that justification is by faith alone uh, apart from works, and it is for the reason that no one can boast, no one can glory, no one can stand in his presence with any claim to the self, but rather when we boast, we are to boast in the Lord and He alone so that 's what I want to want to look at, and we're going to start looking. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is at the end of the chapter, and Paul's going to give us some insight here into boasting and why God operates in his sovereignty in a particular way uh, so that boasting is not an option. He chooses and selects uh, and elects particular things, particular people, in a way that it eliminates boasting, and it's done that way intentionally. So in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians, it reads this way Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the insignificant things of the world. And the despised, hold on to that word, we're going to touch on that in Luke chapter 18. And the despised God has chosen, and the things that are not. Why did God choose the things that are despised, the things that are insignificant, the things that are foolish? So that he may nullify the things that are, so that no human may boast before God. But it is due to him that you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. He quotes Jeremiah 9. So we see that God's choosing his electing his purpose and his intention and his sovereignty he chooses the things that humans would look down upon the things that we deem the lesser he selects so that he can make it the greater the things that are well he nullifies those what does that do that takes away our pride that takes away our ability to boast it's it's, it takes it out of the equation so that we can't even claim our any works of our flesh we don't have the ability to boast because he is the one that is solely responsible and receives all the credit, as he says here. But it is due to him, that is Christ Jesus, that we become wisdom of God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, all of him. There's no room for boasting there. The only opportunity to boast is only in his finished work. And of course, we know Paul said similarly. In Romans chapter 3, um, where he's talking specifically about justification, where he really lays out the nuts and bolts of justification, he says in verse 21 But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But it is the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in christ jesus whom god displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in god's merciful restraint he has let the sins previously committed go unpunished for the demonstration that is of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So that he would be just and he is the justifier. So that that ought to lead us to the question, the question that Paul brings up. If Christ is the justifier, if he is the sole responsibility for our justification, our righteousness before God. Verse 27 then, where then is boasting? How is it possible? Well, specifically, it's intended to be that way so that it has been excluded, he says. Boasting has been excluded by what kind of law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So boasting is excluded because of the justification, which is only through Christ Jesus by faith. There's no room for us to stand before God and to claim any self-righteousness. There's no meritorious work that we can engage in. Then that's different than all the religions of the earth. That's different than all of the beliefs. And it's contrary to our nature. It's contrary to our way of thinking because according to our minds... Our flesh wants to gravitate toward taking some part, some accomplishment that it can lay claim to so that we can feel that we were a part of our right standing before God. But it's not possible. It's simply not possible because to stand before God, one must be perfect and holy. And if we think that we can stand before God on our own merit, it's because we have severely diminished the standard that he requires. But this pride has always been a problem when it comes to self-righteousness. That It's always been something that the Lord has hated, and, and it's been an abomination. It's always something that He has tried to purge, and He will purge. Even going back to uh, the book of Proverbs, and, and there's other places in the Old Testament. For example, in Proverbs 6, we read about the six things that God hates, the seven that are an abomination to him. And what's the first thing? Haughty eyes, a proud look God hates, a lying tongue, the hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who declares lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. What's listed there? An abomination to God is a proud look, man lifted up, Raising himself up is an abomination to the Lord. We recently finished our study in the book of Revelation, and one of the large sections of the book of Revelation that we covered was the day of the Lord. Uh, We studied that, and we saw that that is a a time of plagues, and and God's wrath is poured out on men directly. And the purpose of that is to bring down their pride. As Isaiah says in chapter 2 of Isaiah, uh, he says specifically about the day of the Lord for its purpose. This is why God is determined to bring about the day of the Lord so that the common person has been humbled and the person of importance has been brought low, but do not forgive them. Enter the rocky place and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of humanity will be brought low and the arrogance of people Will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So, God has determined this time in the future when He pours out His wrath, this day of the Lord, and the purpose of Him pouring out His wrath and displaying His anger on that day is so that the proud would be humbled and be brought low, and so that He alone is exalted. He alone is lifted up in that day, because there is an awful lot of Pride, even in in our day, we're getting ready here in in the next few days, embark on a new month that uh, in our country, in our society, we've deemed it Pride Month. We've set aside a whole month, particularly to celebrate sin and to call it Pride Month. The irony is very thick to think that we as humans would set aside a whole month and deem it Pride Month, and yet this Pride is an abomination to the Lord. He's determined to pour his wrath out against it. And so I think our culture would do well to recognize that while they celebrate it. And they are walking directly into the wrath of God. And then to tie this back to our current study in Galatians and and before we begin in, in Luke chapter 18 continuing this understanding of pride where this is all going to end and and that the Lord alone is the one who is lifted up. When we go through the the book of Galatians, we're going to see self-righteousness. We're going to see Judaizers come to the church there at Galatia trying to uh, spy out their liberty, trying to persuade them to be circumcised. Even Peter is going to be challenged by Paul because of this. And so it becomes very clear that our flesh has this natural tendency towards works. And the works that we do, we so want to do them because of our pride. It's a proud and vain person that wants to make a show in the flesh. And that's how Paul concludes his summary in chapter 6 of Galatians. He says this at the end of summarizing everything in chapter 6 of, of Galatians, he says, See this, uh, what large letter I have written to you with my own hand? All who want to make a good show in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. Want to make a good show in the flesh. That's an that's accurate description of self-righteousness there. The motivation is the external show towards other men. They want to make a good show in the flesh to try to compel you to be circumcised. Simply so they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ, they were the Jews were persecuting the church, the, those who profess christ, and in order to avoid that the the motivation was also to avoid the persecution, so uh, they sided with the Judaizers for those who are circumcised, do not even keep the law themselves we 're going to talk about that as well um, where there is self righteousness, there is hypocrisy that is The leaven that Jesus pointed out uh, of the Pharisees, hypocrisy, they were so self-righteous in the things that they did, yet they ignored, as Jesus says, the weightier matters. There's always hypocrisy where there is self-righteousness because the standard of God is always deviated from. It's not perfection. They look to others. They, uh, They find some other way to justify themselves. But they that is the Judaizers, want to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. So they even want to boast in your flesh. They want to convert you to their side so they can also boast in your flesh. But what is Paul's response? And remember, as Paul responds this way, he is a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He is um, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, as he said in the book of Philippians, that if anyone has an option to boast, he has more than any of them. So he has a higher standing than these Judaizers. And what does he say? But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And all who will follow this rule peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So I wanted to use that to tie it together in our study in Galatians and then go back to see what Jesus says in this parable in the middle of Luke 18 uh, because really they're saying the same things. We're going to see pride is the motivating factor here for this Pharisee who goes to pray. So if you want to turn there, turn to Luke 18 and we're going to look at uh, these verses, verses 9 through 14. I'm going to read the text first, and then we'll look into it and begin studying it. And remember, this is in a section where Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom. He's teaching about the the kingdom that is to come and how entrance is gained into the kingdom. So it's within this context where he's talking to the Jews, specifically the Pharisees here. And he says this. He gives them this additional parable. He's been speaking to them in parables. Now, he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and began praying this in regard to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, crooked, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to raise his eyes toward heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So again, we see Jesus addressing the issue of pride and how it comes about in self righteousness, particularly in this Pharisee. So we begin at the, at the beginning of the parable. As I said, Jesus has been teaching in parables to the Pharisees. Verse 9. Now he told this parable to some of the people who trusted in, them, in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. He explains the purpose of the parable. It's, it's a warning. It's a warning to those who would be self-righteous. And of course, he is speaking to the Pharisees, but we can see that applies to all who are self-righteous, all who would believe that their work accomplishes something or even claims the smallest bit in their justification. Uh, that is, like we said... That is the common understanding of all religions, that we have to do something in order to gain right standing with God. But that is so foreign to the scriptures, that is so foreign to what Christ is teaching here in this parable. So we see there's two different people, and he is speaking to those who trust in themselves, as he describes it. They trust in themselves, they place confidence. I think the Greek word is pytho, and that is to be convinced or have confidence in something. It's, it's the same word that Paul uses in Philippians when he talks about having no confidence in the flesh. In, in Philippians chapter 3, he says, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again to you is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Those are the Judaizers. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and take pride in Christ Jesus and put no confidence. That's the same word. No confidence in the flesh. This message is for people that do the opposite. This message is for those who put confidence in the flesh. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They believed by their own works, by their own behavior, by their own law keeping that they had earned a status of righteousness before God. And when you have someone that relies on their own righteousness or believes and has confidence in their own flesh, invariably they will view others with contempt because they have lowered that standard. And so the best way to feel good about yourself and to believe yourself to be righteous is to look at other people and to think you're doing better than them so they view others with contempt they believe they're righteous and they view others with contempt and the uh, the word for contempt here is the same word that we read in 1 Corinthians 1:28 1, and it means to despise to treat with contempt so this is the way it was used when we read it earlier God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the insignificant things of the world and the despised, that's the word there, God has chosen and the things that are not that he may nullify the things that are. So here Paul tells us that God has chosen the despised for this purpose so that no one could glory before him. And in Luke, in the the parable here, Uh, Jesus tells us that these people who trust in themselves, they despise others, the other people, and yet these are the types of people that God actually chooses. So we see that they view others with contempt. We're going to see that play out here uh, as we see the interaction between this Pharisee and the tax collector. Now we know Pharisees, as, as we said, that They were um, the ones that were esteemed in their society. They were politically influential. They were educated. They were the ones that uh, received honor and praise. And they were the ones that people looked to. They were revered highly in the society here. And really, that's kind of the beginning here in, in verse 10, where it says two men went up to the temple to pray. That's where the similarity ends. There's two men with the same intention going up to the temple to pray. So the same intention and purpose. But from there, we see this great contrast in uh, so many different ways. The reputations of the individuals, their demeanor, their attitude, and the things that they say, the way that they pray, all of these things are opposite. But they start with the same intention. They start by going up to the temple to pray. That is their purpose and their Place. They, we know that uh, they would go to the temple to pray twice a day in the morning and the afternoon. Um, so here Jesus gives us these two individuals, one the Pharisee and the other the tax collector. Now just as a way of reminder to remember you know what Jesus has told us and taught us about Pharisees. Uh, we know chapter 23 of Matthew, he gives those condemnations of the Pharisees and speaks the different woes to them just to give you an an idea of the way they behaved. he says in verse 23 of Matthew 23, And Jesus spoke to the crowds and his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. So they they sought out and assumed that they had the rightful seat of honor among the people. Therefore, whatever they tell you, do and comply with it all. But... Do not do as they do, for they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavier burdens and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move, uh, unwilling to move them with so much as their finger. And they do all their deeds to be noticed by other people. That's their motivation. It's not to please God. It's not to come to him and recognize him as holy. It's to be noticed by other people that's always the motivation of pride to be recognized and they do all of these deeds to be noticed by other people for they broaden the phylacteries their phylacteries which is this these are the uh containers that they had the scriptures in on their forehead and on their left arm so they widen those to make them bigger they lengthen the tassel of their garments so they were why would they do that so they would be more obvious and more recognizable so uh, no one would miss who they were and they would Perhaps miss some honor from the people. So they were sure to make themselves as recognizable as possible. Remember, they were standing on the street corners, that's where they would pray just to be noticed by men. And they loved the place of honor at banquets, seats of honor in the synagogues, and personal greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi by the people. So they loved to hear the praise and honor from men. That's, that's what they desired, the honor from men rather than God. And they would love to go to the banquets, synagogues, even in the marketplace when they did their grocery shopping. They wanted to be able to be heard personal greetings and to be called rabbi and teacher. All an appeal to the flesh. Uh, that was their motivation. Now, on contrast with the tax collector, we know that the tax collector, the, the publican, or the tax farmers, really kind of the Greek word that's used there. They, they were ones that went out and tried to farm or tried to get taxes. These, these individuals that had this job uh, had a terrible reputation. They were always associated with uh, sinners uh, and with prostitutes. They were despised, the dregs of society, because they took taxes from the Jews and would give them to the Romans. So uh, you could see why... They would be despised and looked down upon for that particular job. Even with John the Baptist in Luke chapter three, when some of them were baptized, they came to John the Baptist and asked him, "Should we continue in our profession now that you know we're tax collectors? We know how that appears. Should we continue in our profession?" And John the Baptist t- uh, tells them after they were baptized that, you know, he commanded that. You know They should remain, but they should not take any more than they were authorized to do because they were known to tax extra to take a little off the top for themselves. And so you could see why these individuals are considered the scum of society, the outcasts, the people that were not to be associated with. And that's why this tax collector is standing far off when he's here praying at the temple And it's no coincidence that, you know, Jesus is using these two professions that are polar opposites. You know, a professional holy man versus someone that is uh, considered the lowest of society to drive home his point in this parable. Because the contrast between who they are and what they say and how they worship and how they pray is stark. And so it begins with their profession. Going back to the Pharisee in verse 11, the Pharisee stood and began praying this in regard to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, crooked, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So Jesus points out that he, he is praying in regard to himself. And that's very true because his prayer is two sentences here. And he refers to himself, I, five times in his short prayer, the only time that he even acknowledges or gives God any praise, or he's not even giving God any praise, he just, the only time he acknowledges God is in with respect to himself. He's thanking God for him being the way he is. Uh, It isn't even so much of a prayer as it is an ode or a tribute to himself, I thank you that I am not like other people's. There's, there's the contempt again. I am mean, not like other people. That's both displaying the contempt for others and the self-righteousness of the self. Together there in one phrase. I thank you that I am not like other people. And I think that there's times when we have had this thought ourselves. I think if we're honest... About the way we behaved, or maybe some you know when we were newer Christians, we had this idea well that, that might not be that bad of a prayer you know to pray that you know thank you he's he's giving credit to God for who he is, but if we really examine it, we can see that it is all about the self and it it, it all comes from his own personal pride, and it's displayed with this contempt for other people and he says And I don't think that it's a coincidence that he uses these particular types of sinners, swindlers, crooked, adulterers. He's making the claim while saying he's not like them. He's making the claim that he is morally, ethically, and physically pure. He sees himself as perfect and complete, that he is in need of nothing. He sees himself as being completely righteous. He's totally blind in that fact. And this is not dissimilar to uh, the story that Jesus is going to give here. Just a, just a few verses later here in uh, Luke 18, in verse 18, with the rich young ruler, he also had the same perspective, this idea that he was good or he was not in need of, of, of anything. Remember the rich young ruler, we might as well look at that. The rich young ruler questioned, uh, came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And Jesus knew what he was going to respond. And he gave him the law. And then pointed out how the law couldn't help him. Of course, the rich young ruler, probably being a Pharisee himself, responded this way. All these things I've kept from my youth. He thought, as the Pharisee who's going up to pray, that he kept all these things and that he's good. That there's no no need. There's no dependency there. That his own self-righteousness, his own law-keeping was adequate. Now, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, so all that you possess... And distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And what's the reaction from the the ruler, the rich young ruler? But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely wealthy. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so the people there that hear this, they have the right reaction. They kind of throw up their hands and say, well, who who then can be saved? How is it possible to be saved in this situation? And that's right. It's impossible. It's not possible for man to be saved by keeping the law. And Jesus' responds, these things are impossible with people that are impossible with people are possible with God. So God has the only means by which man can be saved. It's not in law keeping as this rich young ruler or this Pharisee going up to pray thought that they were in good standing before God. They thought uh, that they had done everything that was required and that they were worthy of the honor that they received from the people and yet they were lacking in every sense. And then, so he recognizes himself as being better than these swindlers, the adulterer, crooked person. And then he says, and even as this tax collector who's standing there, he recognizes that he's even better than the person standing there afar off. That, you know, of course, as we mentioned, the tax collectors had this reputation. Uh, They were seen as the lower of society because of the job that they did, taking money from the Jews, giving it to the Romans. And so he sees himself as better than this tax collector as well. So he really runs the spectrum of all the different types of sinners uh, that he can think of. Yes, that one too. Whoever's there, I, I think if there was any type of sinner, he would have also said that person as well because he saw himself as better than them all. And that's really driven home by what he says next. He, he, he's listed the things that he doesn't do, so he's taking credit for that. But now he's going to give us his attributes of what he does in his self-righteousness and why he's so worthy and why he's so thankful to God that he is the way that he is, so righteous. So not only does he not do these things, but look at what he does. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. I fast twice. Twice a week. Now, the law didn't require that he fasted twice a week. The law required that he fast before the Day of Atonement. And yet, he was going above and beyond. He was fasting twice a week, even though it was unnecessary. So, in his mind, he was even more righteous than those who were keeping the normal law. He was going above and beyond and displaying his self righteousness to be that beyond. Just the average Pharisee or the average Jew that was keeping the law. And that's also demonstrated in that he pays tithe of all that he gets. And going back to Matthew 23, Jesus shares some light on on how they paid these tithes. Um, They would even take their seeds that they had and count out the little seeds. In, In verse 23 of Matthew 23, Jesus says this way, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So they were so concerned about the way they appeared before men that they would take the little seeds and count them out and make sure that they had tithed enough of the seeds. And of course, they believed doing that, these were The attributes that uh, made them righteous before God going above and beyond to show that they were self-righteous. So it sounds very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 7. When we see and hear the Pharisee listing these attributes, all the things that I've done, all the things that I do for you. Of course, that renders me worthy because I, I, I go above and beyond. What does Jesus say about entering the kingdom of heaven? Um, there are many, and I am sure that this Pharisee would be taken back. He would be completely caught off guard to hear something like this, that Jesus says on the day of judgment, that, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven will enter many So there's lots of people in this particular category. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. I think that this Pharisee would be one of those people standing there As he's already done before God, praying at the temple, listing his attributes. What about this? What about all that I have done? He had complete faith and confidence in his flesh. But as we can see, unfortunately, many that have that confidence, that have that faith in their flesh, will hear those words, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. That is the sad reality of the legalist the one who looks to keep the law, the one uh, who thinks that he can be righteous um, by his own works, by his own merits. So what is the big problem with this prayer? What's the big void that the, the Pharisee is missing? Well, where's the dependency? Where's the heartfelt request? Where's the acknowledgement of the holy character of God? It isn't there. It's all about himself. It is a very selfish prayer. He doesn't recognize God for his attributes and who he is. He doesn't request anything from God. He doesn't petition God in any prayer because he's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything from God. He's good the way that he is. And so his prayer is really about himself. It's not dependent upon God in any way. That's why I think it's so important for us to Acknowledge our shortcomings and submit requests to God when we pray, because in doing so, it demonstrates our dependency upon him. We're showing that we need him, that without him, uh, we have no hope. And so we rightly ought to recognize his holiness and make requests from him. So here we have the prayer, if we can call it that, of the Pharisee. This ode to self that he gives. And now, by contrast, we see the tax collector. Take note of just the complete difference in demeanor, in attitude, and, and in what he says in his prayer. The tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to raise his eyes toward heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's a completely different approach. This prayer, we can see complete dependency on God. He's throwing himself at God saying, you are the only hope. Be merciful to me. And first of all, he's standing some distance away. He's standing away from the, the holy area where the Pharisees would have been because he wouldn't have been allowed to be in that particular section. And he doesn't even raise his eyes toward heaven. So he has this humble demeanor where he, you can sense that he is abhorrent with his flesh, abhorrent with his sin, that he could stand before a righteous God with his sin and plead for mercy. He doesn't even look up towards heaven. His eyes are bowed low, ashamed of who he is, and he is ashamed of the sinfulness of his sin. Beating his chest even. Have you ever been so upset or frustrated or angry with yourself that you beat your chest? Or who am I? Or why did I do that? Or how could I possibly behave in that particular situation? The only other time that this phrase, beating their chest, is used in the scriptures is at the crucifixion. In Luke 23, we see the the people there in, in verse 44 it was now the sixth hour, and darkness had come over the entire land until the ninth hour, uh, because the sun stopped shining and the veil of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice, said, "Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit." And having said that, he died. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, "This man was, in fact, innocent." And the people, the crowd that's gathered together to witness this, they were watching what happened, they began to return home, beating their chests, and all his acquaintances and women who accompanied him from the Gentiles were standing at a distance seeing all these things. So the the people that saw this and the centurion that had this reaction to certainly this man was innocent, were beating their chests when they realized that this was indeed the Christ. So this tax collector, standing, coming to worship and coming to pray at the temple, stands before God, bowed down, no sense of self-worth, no sense of self-righteousness, but at the mercy of God, in fact, requesting specifically the mercy of God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And the word that he uses here for mercy, uh, it's actually deeper than that in the Greek uh, he is asking for mercy, but the Greek here explains something of a deeper depth than just mercy. And the word here is uh, a word for propitiation. It's not just that he is asking for a propitiation to take place. He's looking for someone to step in to make himself right with God. Asking that God will have mercy on him in a particular way that he would make atonement. That he would come in and, and and satisfy the wrath of God which he recognized was due to him. So he's asking for this propitiation to happen for him. He's dependent upon that. He he knows that he is deserving of the wrath of God. And this word that's, that he uses here is... Used only one other time. It's used twice in the New Testament. The other example is in Hebrews chapter 2. And we can see here that it is rendered in this case propitiation. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, so that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil. And free those who through fear of death were subjected to slavery all their lives. For clearly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brothers so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's the same word that this tax collector uses when he appeals to God that he needs a propitiation because as he says here i am the sinner make propitiation for me the sinner he uses the uh, the definite article he calls himself the sinner Um, This morning, Tom, you read about Paul calling himself the chief of sinners. And we can kind of see that type of attitude that this tax collector is expressing, that he's not associating himself as one of a group of many sinners. He's saying, my sin, I am the sinner. That's what matters. His sin is the only thing that's standing between him and God. And he's pleading for propitiation. And he knows that his sin is what is keeping him from standing before a righteous and holy God. And he's not trying to diminish that by making himself part of many, that he's just another sinner. But no, it is specifically the sin that he is so concerned about. And that is the great obstacle. That is why he needs that propitiation. He, he recognizes that there is no other way. There is no other way to access He can't do anything. He is completely incapable and and knows that there's nothing he can do. His only case, his only hope is to plead to a holy God for propitiation. So what's the verdict? How does Jesus leave this? This is, again, a teaching lesson, part of this parable. Jesus says then, in verse 14, and this had to come as an absolute shock to his listeners, had to come as an absolute shock to the Pharisees. For sure, they would have thought that the Pharisee was the righteous one because of all he did, because of his tithing, because of his fasting, because the, he didn't associate with all of the sinners. But Jesus says, I tell you. And that's interesting language, too, because we know when Jesus was given the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, that he frequently said that, that you have heard it said with an expectation towards what they understood. And then he would say, but I tell you. And I feel like in the same way here is anticipating their expectation that it is the Pharisee that is justified and righteous. But he says, but I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, this man being the tax collector. No works, no merit, but yet justified. How can it be? Justified rather than the other. Rather than the one doing all the works, rather than the one receiving all the honor and praise. But this broken sinner who came to pray, who recognized that there was no hope in and of himself. He went away justified to his house. Righteous. Not the other one, because he was dependent, because he was humbled, because no flesh will be exalted before the Lord, because no one can say that they attributed or had any part in their justification, their right standing before God. No one can lay that claim. Certainly not this Pharisee, but yet to the humble, to the broken, to the sinner, Who throws himself before the Lord. Begging for mercy. Begging for a propitiation. That is the one. Who goes away justified. That's grace. That's remarkable grace. That is grace. 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 Grace beyond all measure. Undeserving. Unmerited. And then. The end. The way that Jesus concludes this. Goes back to what we talked about. The problem of boasting in flesh, trying to glory in his sight, that will not happen. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And we know that Jesus made this statement multiple times. But to think of that, that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Grace to the humble. Those who know they're undeserving, those who run to him he receives he gives grace to he exalts says he exalts him in their in due time so the one who came thinking he was unworthy goes away justified that's the power of christ that's the power of justification by faith that's what paul teaches and that's what jesus is teaching here as well in this parable and i think it's a uh, going to be interesting as we study through the book of Galatians to see this played out again and again to know that as Paul also says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves it's a gift from God not as a result of works why? so that no one can boast boasting pride, arrogance taken out of the equation so that When it comes to our justification, there is no room for boasting. God alone will be exalted when it comes to justification. Christ alone will be lifted up and receive all the credit and all the praise for our right standing with God. He's the one that did it. He's the one that accomplished. He did it through his grace and for his mercy. And he did it so that he gets all the praise and that so no flesh can glory in his sight. It's a wonderful plan of salvation. Don't lean on your own righteousness. Don't be the one who thinks that they are better than others, that thinks and looks upon others with contempt. We ought to be humbled by our sin to throw ourselves before Christ, pleading that he be the propitiation for our sins. That's the only way. Christ is the only way. Unfortunately, the other way, the one who depends on his self righteousness will hear, Depart from me. He's going to hear those words. And to know that someone who was thinking he was so self righteous and yet was not, did not have the right standing before God because he was dependent on himself, didn't need God, not in his mind. He thought he was perfect. And yet the tax collector humbled himself and pled for the mercy of God, which we ought to do as well, and praise him to know that he is the justifier of men. In Luke 16, verse 14, Luke tells us this. Jesus says, and now the Pharisees, they were lovers of money, were listening to all the things and ridiculing him, ridiculing Christ. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourself In the sight of people, that's what they looked for. That's what they wanted was the justification before men. But God knows your heart because that which is highly esteemed among people is what? Detestable in the sight of God. His ways are not our ways. What we would esteem as high, he sees as detestable because he alone will see and receive the praise and glory that he is due. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for the great work of justification by faith, knowing that you are the propitiation and that we cannot come to you with any claim of self-righteousness, with any claim of works. There's nothing we attribute or can contribute that would increase or improve our right standing before God. The only way that we can claim a right standing before God is through the finished work of Christ Jesus alone. And it's by your grace and it's by your mercy that you deemed it possible, that you deemed that it would happen, that you would save some through the finished work of Christ Jesus. We thank you for that finished work. We thank you that you have justified us that you have cleansed us that you have made us righteous that you have become the propitiation you have satisfied the wrath of god for us so that there is nothing that we can do so that we have no possibility and no reason to boast in front of you but let us then boast of the lord and boast of our savior because he is the one and is worthy to receive all the praise and glory and honor so we pray that you would be glorified and magnified by this message in christ jesus name Amen. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.